Who's, uh, who's been angry this week? Come on, be honest. Who's been angry? All right. Who's lost it? Who's wanted to lose it? Anyone there? Anyone in that category? It's like, yeah, they, they should have had it coming to them this week, but I was pretty nice to them. Uh, you probably thought, there's some people in my life that deserve a bit of grief and they just don't know how gracious I'm actually being with them at the moment. Well, you've come to the right place today uh, because what we're actually going to talk about today is we're going to spend a bit of time talking about anger. And uh, I want to start off by showing you a, a clip from a, uh, a show I uh, enjoy sitting down and laughing at, which is called Whacked Out Sports. Um, I'll just roll it. Okay, time to play. To be the um. Here we see a pitcher attempting a pickoff. He throws to the second baseman who makes the tag. Is he safe or is he out? You be the ump. The ump says safe, but the manager begs to differ. Oh, the skipper makes a big mistake here. No breath mints. This might be the minor leagues, but this, my friends, is a major league meltdown. Oh, that's mature. Well, at least he got it out of his system. Or not. Hey, single-A ball is tough. Long season, traveling in those stuffy buses, showering with 25 other guys, you're bound to snap. Now, if you're a manager, here are some tips for your next tantrum. Make sure to get your point across clearly. Throwing bats is a nice touch. Embarrassing the ump in front of a thousand fans, always a winner. Oh, and don't forget to say something nasty about his mother. I don't know who's done that, something like that. Anyone done that? Anyone wish they'd done something like that? Come on, be honest. It's just like set the dogs loose on someone. They deserve it. This, uh, this message today, uh, I mean, we're going to be looking at uh, angry Jesus out of Mark 11. Uh, the, the difficult thing about this message is it's a bit like parent-teacher interviews in schools. The parents that come to the parent-teacher interviews rarely are the ones that you need to see, and the ones that don't come are the ones you actually do need to see. And uh, the problem with anger is that uh, pretty much everyone who's got a problem with anger, which hopefully you'll see is pretty much all of us, uh, and no one actually thinks they do have a problem with anger. It's just everyone else. It's all the other morons in the world that's the problem. You with me? See, those who are angry uh, can feel quite good about themselves after bludgeoning someone close to them because they feel like they've set the world right. But uh, what's actually happening underneath there is uh, angry people tend to be completely deluded and blind. And uh, that reality about anger should actually scare us all. One more uh, little uh, survey at this point in time. Who here has ever been angry and either had in the back of their mind or said it out of their mouth that Jesus got angry and that's a justification for them being angry. Anyone? Be honest. Oh, I see that. It's half mass now. Lucky to be that. So what we're going to do is we're going to read um, uh, from Mark 11, verse 12 to 25. Um, so if you've got Bibles, you can read it there or you can read it up on the screen. A couple of little uh, kind of uh, explanatory notes as we do this. The interesting thing about the, uh, the Gospels is... Um, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are eyewitness accounts. The nature of an eyewitness account is that you need to kind of put them together to find out the fuller picture of what was actually going on because eyewitness accounts um, differ in what they report on. Well, they're not necessarily contradictory, but they differ. So one of the interesting things you'll find with Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, if you went and you searched a bit about Jesus clearing the temple out, you'd find in John that he, um, he actually does the clearing of the temple at the start of his ministry or early on, and in Matthew, Mark and Luke, he's actually doing it very late in his ministry. Now, if you do your homework on that, like some people out there, the critics will go, oh, see, they contradict each other. Well, I actually think it's very, very reasonable that he actually did it twice. Uh, the two reports are very different about what actually happened and what the interchanges were. And when you see later on what was going on in the temple, you'll probably appreciate that over the three years of Jesus' ministry, it's entirely likely that he actually did it twice. Uh, so what, what we're actually reading here is something that's very late in Jesus' ministry. So let's, um, let's get into it. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it, 
it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, here's one more little note that I want to um, highlight for you. Do you know this is verse 11? And if, if you've got an ESV Bible, this verse 11 occurs in the previous section, okay? Before the subheading. Now, the subheadings aren't inspired on the Bible, in the Bible, but it occurs before the subheading. Now, it tells you a very, very important piece of information about what Jesus is up to, okay? So what's happened is he's come in in the, the triumphal entry, he's gone into the temple, he's had a look around, it's late, he's left, okay? On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig in leaf, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the, f- the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this is not just angry Jesus. This looks like cranky Jesus, doesn't it? It's just like, you're done. Now, does anyone think that's a bit unfair? It's like poor fig tree, all right? Now, Mark's gone to the, the lengths of saying, hey, listen, it wasn't actually the season for figs and Jesus just toasted it, basically. Now, they're going to come back the next day um, they're going to walk past it the next day and the, the thing's dead from the roots up it's dead and Jesus has just toasted it now there has been no end of trouble that this verse has actually caused commentators and uh, opponents to Christianity one of which was Bertrand Russell you guys heard of Bertrand Russell Bertrand Russell was a uh, famous or infamous whichever way you view it um, British uh, atheist uh, this is what uh, Bertrand Russell actually wrote in his book um, and it was called, uh, his book was called A Fresh Look at Empiricism. And this was the chapter specifically why I'm not a Christian. Okay. This is what he writes about this. Then there is a curious story of the fig tree, which always rather puzzled me. You remember what happened about the fig tree. He was hungry and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves. He came if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And Peter saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. That is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs and you could really not blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. Listen to his statement because of the fig tree. I think I should put Buddha and Socrates above him in those respects. So Bertrand Russell's got some issues with it. Now, anyone got a fix for that one? <laughs> That's a tricky one. But it's not that tricky if you know about fig trees. All right? So let me tell you a little bit about fig trees. This would have been helpful for Bertrand Russell before he penned his words. Uh, after the fig harvest from mid-August to mid-October, the branches of fig trees sprout buds that remain undeveloped throughout the winter. These buds swell into small green knobs known in Hebrew as pagum, in March, April, followed shortly by the sprouting of leaf buds on the same branches, usually in April. The fig tree produces these little knobs called pagum before they actually produce leaves and then it produces fruit after that. Now, what do you reckon people used to do with the pagum? Eat it. (laughs) They would eat it. It was edible and people would eat it. So what you've actually got here is you've got Jesus going up to a fig tree it's got leaves on it. It should have pagum on it, but it doesn't. There's no fruit on it. He curses it. Is that okay? That's what's going on. Um, it's actually completely reasonable and Jesus hasn't gone insane at this point. So you could say it was not the season for figs, but it was the season for pagum, And he should have found some pagum on it if the tree was good. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city as they passed by in the morning they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots and peter remembered and said to him rabbi look the fig tree that you cursed is withered and jesus answered them have faith in god i mean this is a really curious we're going to get to this but isn't this a curious jesus says weird things sometimes doesn't he or he appears to it's like 
Hey, look, that fig tree died. And he goes, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Can we get back to the fig tree? Because that's what we asked you about. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So today, what I want to look at uh, is three things uh, regarding anger. The first thing we're going to see today is the nature of Jesus' anger. The second thing we'll see is the object of Jesus' anger. And the third thing is the objective of Jesus' anger. Notice this here back uh, in Mark 11, 11, as I mentioned before. What does Jesus do with his disciples? They come into the city, they come into the temple, he has a look around and then they leave. Now, what does this tell you about his uh, anger that he's going to express the next day? Well, he's not flying off the handle, is he? He's not reacting to it. He's not blowing up. He's, he's, he's gone into the temple. He's had a bit of a look um, before he, uh, he does anything about it. Now, the really fascinating thing is that when you go to Mark 14, verse 49, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to his arresters, he says, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. Jesus is slow to anger. He's been in the temple lots. He knows what's going on. He knows what they're up to in there. And we're going to get into the details of that later on. But he knows what they're up to. He knows that they're fleecing people and they're robbing people and they're taking advantage of people in the temple. He knows that stuff's happening. And at best, what we've got over a three-year period is Jesus going into the temple on two different occasions and getting cranky with people. The rest of the time, he doesn't. And do you reckon he would have actually been in the temple teaching and uh, communicating the truth about God to people had actually been standing there watching people getting ripped off. In the t- he would have been, wouldn't he? He just would have been there. And you've got to get, you know, you don't want to just kind of go, he is flying off the handle right here. Jesus is not flying off the handle in his anger. He is very deliberate and he's very controlled about his, uh, his anger. He is the divine expression of Proverbs 14.29. Listen to this. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And curiously, or maybe not curiously, Jesus' anger is much like God's anger is described in the Old Testament. Does anyone know the phrase that's used to describe God's anger time and time again? Slow to anger. You see, and even the fact that you guys have just gone, I've just said what phrase is used to describe God's anger you straight up you just go slow to anger like that for you it's like that's the category it's in God keeps telling me he's very very slow to anger that's what God's anger is actually like in uh, Exodus 34 verse 6 to 7 God's talking to Moses um, and he says this the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord a God merciful and gracious it's the next three words slow to anger He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't react. And I think what we're seeing here from Jesus is something that's very deliberate. He's not flying off the handle. He's not out of control, but he's very purposeful and he's very um, determined about what he's actually going to do. And some people might say, really? Like you're actually saying to me that one of God's character traits is that he's angry? Yeah, I am. Because... Anger is a necessary counterpart, in a sense, or associate, I should say, with, uh, with love, isn't it? Have you ever known someone who's, um, who's had someone do something really evil to them and they're not angry about it? Or they, they, they know someone who's done something very evil to someone that they love and they're not angry about it. Have you, have you ever known anyone like that? Like it, at that moment, that's weird, isn't it? Because you just got, that is really, really bad. And it's kind of like, if, if someone's not angry about an evil that's been done to someone else, it's kind of like, like you just going, that is just, it's just a weird place to be in. Because there's stuff that, it, someone needs to be angry with it, <laughs> isn't there? I mean, it's a brutal world that we live in. People do things and they really hurt each other. You know, if God's character wasn't one of wrath and anger, uh, what, what does his love even mean? You know, I mean, there's people out there, you know, I mean, there's been so much stuff on the news about domestic violence, you know. I, I mean, a man who shoots his wife in McDonald's <laughs> shouldn't get away with that, shouldn't he? 
There should be someone who's really angry with him and he squares that up. Agreed? Like it's, it's like if God never squared any of that up and he never got angry about things, he couldn't really trust that he loved you. You couldn't trust that he was love because love requires anger to things that are not loving. Yet isn't it a wonderful thing how much God overlooks offence? Isn't it? Proverbs 19 verse 11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offence. And that's what God does. There's this beautiful scene, for those of you who know the story of Jonah, uh, in Jonah 4, where uh, Jonah just wants God to smoke the Ninevites, all right? Just smoke them. Um, and Jonah gets really, really angry about how God's been kind to him. And it's this really weird kind of interchange where you kind of go, hang on, God's the one who should be most upset with the Ninevites. Jonah's more upset than God. God's more gracious than Jonah wants him to be. And Jonah's really angry about it. Do you know the question God asks Jonah? He says, do you do well to be angry? That's a good question. (laughs) And God would ask you and I that, wouldn't he? He would say, when you're angry, Peter, do you do well to be angry? Good question. Well, what am I doing here? I am setting us up a little bit for where I want to go, okay? Jesus in the temple, Jesus' anger, God's anger, our anger. (laughs) And that's where we're going now. We're going to our anger. So let me give you a few typical expressions of anger. See if you can identify with any of these. What about this one? Desire for revenge. Get them. (laughs) Just get them. Irritability. That's anger. Arguing. That's anger. Bitterness. That's anger. You notice how small the text is? <laughs> Violence. It's definitely anger. What about this one? Fantasies of another's misery. That's anger, isn't it? This is like people who drive past someone's house, you know, and they kind of flip the bird to them, you know, and they, to their house. They're not even watching, or they say things about them, or, or they just sit down and they just. I can think of six really, really cool bad things that could happen to them right now. <laughs> you guys know people like that? <laughs> You're all sitting there like, yeah, I know a few guys like that. Cursing. Aiming profanity at family and friends without them knowing. Have you done that? Or you just on your own and you're just under your breath. You're just, you're a mutterer and you're just kind of, you're unloading. And no one, no one hears it. And maybe no one even sees it. Except for God. Cursing. Jealousy. Other people deserve less and I deserve more kind of anger. Self-righteous anger. I'm going to get to that. I mean, that is, who gets angry and doesn't think they're right? (laughs) You get what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't happen. Everyone who's angry thinks they're right. And they think it's it's righteous anger. They're kind of like, yeah, I mean, I'm being like Jesus. That's what I'm doing. Uh, I was talking to someone earlier today and they said, yeah, but who's going to tell the people who are being stupid that they're being stupid? He's going, well, obviously you do. Grumbling and complaining. A fascinating thing, just a quick side note, is that uh, grumblers and complainers tend to be the last ones to recognise that grumbling and complaining is anger. Uh, But that's what it is. This is a classic Australian one, isn't it? Uh, Cynicism. All right, you look down on politics, you look down on the church, you look down on sermons, uh, sarcasm, Australian sarcasm, like I'm just going to rip on it and everything's just dumb anyway. Indifference. Have you ever known anyone like this? Anger's about power. This person's too far above people to care. Ever known anyone like that? I don't care, I'm, I'm above you guys. I've got this sorted, but it's actually... Anger, they're still gunning for power and control. They're just using something uh, different to get to it. And sarcasm, as I mentioned earlier. Now, let me uh, give you a couple of rare expressions of anger. Here's the first one. It's what I mentioned earlier, is absent anger. Really strange thing when someone is connected to someone who's been hurt or they're connected to someone who's, uh, where there's something um, really evil happening and there's no anger there. I mean, 
It would be weird, wouldn't it, if your child got taken um, and sold as a sex slave, which happens in the world, and you weren't angry about that. You get what I'm saying? But that, that's just weird. At that moment, you're just going, there is something that is just not right at this point. You don't get aroused when real things are occurring. You're indifferent and detached. And here's a category that Jesus falls in, righteous anger. What's Jesus doing in the temple? He's clearing a space for Gentiles to connect with God. And he rights the wrongs that were happening in the temple. You see, righteous anger acts redemptively and constructively in the presence of wrong. So, what does anger say? What is anger actually saying? If you got angry this week, what does it actually say? Well, you know, the first thing it says is, I want. And I want power and control and anything else I want at that moment. I want to be right and punish you because you've wronged me. Now, this is really important. This is not the only thing that anger says, but this is really important, right? Because when you get angry, what's actually happening in that anger at one level is you're actually taking a divine position, all right? Now, there can be a side to anger where you just kind of go, there is an evil and a wrong that's actually happened and that's not right and that should not happen. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the unrighteous expression of anger that we have is like, I become, when I get angry, I become the judge of the universe and everyone's supposed to be doing what I want at that point. And if they don't, they need to be punished. And I'm trying to kind of control it. That's one thing that anger actually says. Here's another one. I'm afraid. It's true, isn't it? Like, uh, I don't know whether you've ever seen it, but sometimes people can be kind to someone who's afraid and they'll just smoke them <laughs> in anger because they're afraid. You know, I was, I was talking to someone uh, last night and I just, it just kind of came to me as we were talking about how um, anger can be kind of aggressive anxiety aggressive fear uh, at that point um, so you can be afraid another one is people when they're angry can actually be saying listen i'm actually guilty stop looking at me i don't want to be seen and when people are kind to them it's just kind of like you're just making this worse you're making me feel worse it can get them more and more angry uh, and sometimes people's anger can actually say i'm angry but it isn't you um, anger can say a whole bunch of different things Now, what's the trouble with our anger? Well, here's the first thing. I'm going to give you three things that are the trouble with our anger in comparison to God. The first thing is this. It blinds. The angry person is blind to it. It's like I said before, who gets angry and doesn't feel justified being angry? Um, Every angry person thinks they are righteous. (laughs) Have you noticed that? That they're the good guy. And you know what's ironic about angry people is that they're often the last to know that they're angry and uh, this is something we talked about in the church in church here a little while ago is the noetic effects of sin sin's had a an impact it's changed the way that we think and the way that we actually perceive things it's actually damaged our ability to think correctly in the words of ecclesiastes you know what sin does it makes us crazy mad insane And anger is a particularly strong um, sin to make us blind. It's very powerful in making us blind and making us crazy. So let me give you a couple of examples. Your child's doing something, they accidentally make a mess. Now, this happened to me the other day. You know what I did? I got angry and I told my son to be more careful. Now, what's an accident? That's just something that happens. He actually wasn't being that careless, all right? Look, there might have been a couple of things that could have been tweaked, but generally he wasn't being that careless. This is kind of the old don't cry over spilt milk, all right? Don't get angry over spilt milk. It's like it's an accident. Do do you get what I'm saying? Like it doesn't make any sense for me to get angry with him because it was an accident. And like at that point in time, what is anger actually doing? Is it helping to clean up the mess? It's just making more mess. You see what I mean? Like it doesn't, it just doesn't work. What about this one? You leave for holidays and you remember an hour into the trip that you forgot your wallet. So you hit the steering wheel and you scream out the window. Well, they seem logical and very therapeutic at the time, but it doesn't. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just, you just go, okay, can you, I'm not with you on the logic. You know, like you left the wallet behind and so you hit the steering wheel. Can you, tell me, see how that connects? How's that helping? 
Just go, no, what it is, is it someone who's just been blinded by anger and is just doing dumb stuff, basically. They're turning into an idiot. What about this one? When you're frustrated and irritated with someone and you know that the words, will you forgive me, will help, you cannot get those blasted things out of your mouth, can you? Do you get what I'm saying? And you know if you actually say those words, it's going to lead to the peace that you want. But you just, for the life of you, you just cannot force those things outside of your mouth. Do you get what I'm saying? Anger's crazy. Crazy. Like, it's actually crazy. Have you ever tried to reason with an angry person? Have you? Does it work? (laughs) It actually doesn't work. It never works pretty much 99.9% of the time. It never works to reason with an angry person. Why? Because they're nuts at that point. They've just got insane. It's like they've turned into an idiot. And so what do you do? It's kind of like you've got an idiot here who's not working on any kind of premise of reasonable, reasonable, rational thinking. And this person over here is, and they're just going, I can't think of any good reasons why I should listen to them. There's no good reasons. They're the idiot. He knows what I'm talking about. See, people are delusional when they're angry. An angry person's the last person to know, if ever. See, everyone else is peeling themselves off the wall. And the angry person's pleased that finally the morons in this place have finally understood his impeccable and irresistible logic. That's irrational. All right? Doesn't make sense. Number two, trouble with their anger, it's stupid. You see, I mean, I showed you that clip about the baseball at the start, right? That was funny to watch, yeah? Kind of. Who here was kind of going, I wish I was the umpire? (laughs) So you get my point? Anger can be a bit amusing to watch because it's really, really stupid. Like, people turn into idiots when they're angry. But... When someone's getting hurt, that becomes a whole different kind of category. Anyway, I want to show you a quick clip. Um, you guys remember John McEnroe? Classic. Just going off on the tennis court. Let me show you this. This is just a, the ad at the start with him in it is just sensational. I love it. Outside the space, sir. You cannot be serious! It's on the line! Sorry, sir, it's out. It's in! How can you possibly call that? It's clearly in! Put the racket down, sir. Put the racket down, sir. The man with the mouth is tennis legend John McEnroe, a.k.a. the Super Brat, famous for winning seven Grand Slam titles and for slamming umpires. I can't believe this! His temper is absolutely legendary. Answer my question! The question, Jack! We loved his tanties. I reckon there's a bit of showmanship. A lot of showmanship with John McEnroe. You could say he was a showman, or you could say he was a whiny brat. The thing is, if you've got the talent, you can tend to get away with the bad behaviour. He played beautiful tennis, wonderful touch. But I often wondered how John McEnroe got through his tennis career without somebody jobbing him on the jaw. I would have paid to see that. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! What is he cranky about? I mean, he's getting paid a fortune to go out there and play a game all day. He must just go into the change rooms, take his jeans off and his cranky pants straight on. I don't care if McEnroe upsets or insults a few people from time to time. It doesn't matter. Look, I forgive people getting angry in a supermarket line. I can forgive someone at that level of sport just losing it. How much bigger a point can you screw it up with? Makes me sick! (laughs) Oh, anyone just kind of with him there on some of those? Oh, maybe not. You know, like, it's funny, right? The first... um, the first uh, piece of trouble with their anger is that it blinds us. The second thing is it's just it's really, really stupid. Like people do some really, really dumb things when they're angry. You know, and in one sense you can kind of look at it and you go, 
That's, that's pretty funny at one level. But at a whole other level, you just go, it's just not funny at all. You know, no one's putting their hand up here to be an umpire. And you look at the, um, the state of uh, our culture and where we're at in terms of domestic violence at the moment, and you actually just, you realise it, it is a very, very, very serious thing, uh, anger. And uh, no one's laughing uh, when they're on the receiving end. Um, number three, the trouble with their anger is that it's inherently self-righteous. You see, anger actually says you're wrong and I'm right. And it's absolutely certain in its judgment. It never wavers in self-confidence. Um, you know, if, even if you were able to rationally connect with someone who is angry, you know what they'd likely say? This is really good. I'm going to take notes because my wife needs to hear this. <laughs> All right? Because that's the anger thing. The anger thing is like, it's everyone else around me that's the problem. It's not actually me that is the problem. I'm the one that's getting it right and in a world where we are God anger makes perfect sense you see anger is kind of like um, omniscient infallible judgment but isn't it amazing how even though that's what's actually going on with anger the true God of this world what did he do the true God that's the creator we're not the creator we're not the god we're the creatures what does he do he chooses the path of a servant in order to rescue comfort and encourage you see do you see the difference our anger is 99.9 percent of the time much much different you know and our, our cry really needs to be doesn't it it's like god help us to see uh, our anger help us to see where we're up to with that help us not be the last one to know about our anger Here's a um, quote from Ed Welsh, which um, I think is, is pretty helpful. He says this, he says, I want to keep asking my wife and at least one other person if they've seen me frustrated or angry. I want to have no wiggle room for righteous indignation. By that I mean that since 99% of my anger is sinful, I don't want to give tacit permission to my frustration by calling it righteous indignation. What's Ed saying? Ed's actually saying that Everyone thinks by definition that their anger is righteous anger, all right? And he's going, you don't want to back yourself to get that one right because you know how difficult and, uh, and dangerous that is. Uh, he says, if I'm angry because of what was done to another person, I'm on safer ground. If I'm angry because of what someone did to me, I'm always wrong. Now, I would think if you actually went and spoke to Ed Welsh and said, mate, really, like 100% always wrong? I think he would say, no, there's sometimes that you could actually be sinned against and there could be an anger in there that's part of it maybe is righteous. But you know what he's doing is he's kind of pushing really hard against that whole thing of ang angry people, that thinks that every time they get angry is righteous. And he's going, righto, here's, here's a good category for you. All right? If you're angry about what someone's done to something else, you're probably in a safer category of being able to be angry and not sinning. If it's about you, that's a really, really hard one and you're just better off to assume that you can never do that <laughs> righteously. Do you get what he's saying? Be angry and don't sin. Forget about trying to master that one. Don't let it authorise one blasted scrap of anger. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a few questions just to think about and you could go away and think about these um, on your own at some point in time if you'd like. Do you stretch and enlarge the category of anger so it includes you? Do you know what angry people do? They have a narrow definition of what anger is. And for them, for example, it might be angry people are the ones that wind their windows down and yell at people in road rage. <laughs> but I don't do that, so I'm not an angry person. And so they kind of narrow it down, okay? And what, uh, what this question is really asking is, have you got a broad definition of what anger is that's likely to catch you as well? Or are you kind of narrowing it down and saying, no, I don't have a problem? And hopefully, even just the way I've explained that, you just kind of go, oh, I see what you're up to. If you narrow it down, it's about self-righteousness. It's about being right on your own. In the last six months, have you confessed your sin of anger to both God and the injured person? Have you done it? And we're not just talking about flare-up loud anger. We're just talking about grumbling. Maybe you just complain. In the last six months, have you asked those closest to you 
When have you seen me angry in the last few weeks? When will you ask them? Do you really understand that the, the real cause is not them? And it's really I want and I'm not getting what I want? What about this one? Do you know that Jesus was never angry because of something done to him? That's a bit of a kick in the guts. That one. Never angry because of something done to him. Now, of all the people, a bit like Jonah, like I said before, of all the people who had a right to be angry, it was him. But he was never angry because of things done to him. Do you even care that he wasn't angry? Are you ever wrong? You see, angry people against all the odds are nearly always right. And this question that we covered before, do you have a right to be angry? That was God's patient question to Jonah. Do you usually feel confident that you're right? What about this one? Do you ever find yourself not wanting another person's best? And the last one here is um, a question. You know that classic line is, oh, I just had to get it off my chest. Now, what happens when you get it off your chest? Anyone like to throw in on that? It goes on someone else's chest. It's like, uh, it's good for me right now, but it's kind of sucked to be you right now if you don't want me putting it that way. That's kind of what it is. But man, I'm, I'm feeling free because I got it off, but now you've got the, the baggage. You really have to get it off your chest. Whose chest is it most often laying on? I want to show you a short clip from uh, CCF. Uh, it's Ed Welsh talking about anger, and I think he's um, it's got some really good points about uh, practical approaches to it. Here we go. I'm not a real expert in werewolf movies, but it seems to me that's that's really somewhere the answer lies in a good werewolf movie. Somebody who knows they're a werewolf, what do they do? They, they, they duct tape, they tape themselves to a tree or, or, or something like that. So in the midst of anger, what do you do? You carry duct tape around and you, you just duct tape your face, you duct tape your arms, you duct tape your legs, you, you start or you have a machete, you start cutting off your arms, you cut out your tongue. You know, those, those are the kind of things you do at the moment. Um, if you, here, here's, this would be a great one, to have some kind, of, some kind of electrodes on our body that people around us could push a button and they would shock us, they would, they would, they would, they would shock us so severely that we would fall on the ground and and not be able to speak. That's, I, I'm being just a little bit over the top. Uh, what I'm, I, I'm, I'm taking the question and I'm saying, the person's taking anger very seriously. How do you stop it in mid-course? Well, you take the most dire actions possible. That's what you do. But the real work is gonna be done between those times where, where you turn into the werewolf. And Luke, Luke chapter 18, to, to grow as a tax collector, to repent as a tax collector. To anger says, I am right and everybody else is wrong. The tax collector doesn't seem to have that particular confidence. The tax collector says, I am wronger than everyone else. Uh, and he can't even lift his eyes to heaven, beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's, that's the best preparation for those who struggle with anger. Just closing at this point on uh, Jesus' anger is uh, we can see his anger, we can see God's anger in the Old Testament, and we can see that our anger often is not like God's anger. And let's just, a bit like what Ed just said there, let, let's just be honest about that. You know, let's confess it, let's confess it to one another that we want to be God um, when we get angry and, uh, and we hurt people. Next thing I want to move on to is. Um, the object of Jesus' uh, anger. I just want to set this up a little bit for you first. There's this uh, literary um, 
uh, pattern or uh, tool that uh, the biblical writers use often. That's called a chiasm. And basically a chiasm is where um, um, they'll introduce a topic, they'll, they'll, they'll speak about this topic here, that one there, and, and then a third one maybe, and then come out of it. And what will happen is if you talk about the first topic as being topic A, um, they'll talk about a certain thing there, then they'll talk about topic B, then they'll talk about topic C, and then they'll talk about topic B, and then topic A again. All right? And it's kind of like at the bookends of it, they're talking about the same thing. The next step in, they're talking about the same thing, but the thing that they're really talking about is the thing in the middle. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? That's kind of a strategy. You actually see that uh, in, the, in the, um, the books of prophecy in the Old Testament, like this chiasm thing. And so when you read it, you read all the other stuff and you just think that's all really great, but you're looking for the thing in the middle to find out what is this thing really about because that's the strategy that they're using. And I think this is uh, exactly what's going on here in this um, story about the fig tree in the temple. So uh, there's heaps of text on the screen. I'm not going to read through it all, but the, uh, the first bullet point, up, bullet point up there, what's the story about at that point in time? You can throw in at this point. What's it about? The fig tree, all right? What's the middle bit about? Yeah, it's, it's about the temple. Money changes in the temple. What's the last bit about? What does it start with? Fig tree. Do you see that? Fig tree, temple, fig tree. So what's the whole story about? The temple. <laughs> okay. Fig tree, temple, fig tree. So the whole story is actually about the temple. So um, what has the fig tree got to do with the temple? Someone to throw in? Temple's not bearing fruit. See, I only should be preaching today. All right? The temple's not bearing fruit. Do you see that? That's what it is. Oh, the temple is not bearing fruit. And do you notice here that uh, what Jesus does to the fig tree is he, um, he curses it. Now, does anyone know what happens to the temple in around about 70 AD? What happens? It gets destroyed. Okay? So do you see what's going on here is there's kind of an enacted parable going on here where Jesus is saying, here's a fig tree that should have fruit on it that it doesn't. And here's a temple that should be fruitful and it's not. And both of them are cursed. You see, there was the appearance of life on the fig tree, wasn't there? But there wasn't any fruit. And despite all the religious activity, the temple was an outlaw's hideout as a den of robbers. It says that in Matthew 21, verse 13. You see, the people in the day believed that they could pay some kind of service to God in the temple and do as they pleased and that they'd get away with it. That God somehow would rally to their raid without them having to conform to his will. There was a sense of spiritual neglect that was actually going on in the uh, temple. Um, if we just have a, a bit of a closer look there at uh, Mark 11, you can actually see it's, it's, there's two main things coming out there. One of them is that there's robbers in there, so people are stealing stuff. And the other one is that it's uh, messing up the uh, court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles would be able to come and access God in the temple. So let me show you a couple of pictures. This is a, uh, a map of Jerusalem and you can see there uh, back in the day and uh, you can see there up the top that that's, the, uh, that's Herod's temple uh, that he built. Okay? Now, it was massive. Right? This was a big, big deal. If you look at this picture, you can see a comparison between Solomon's temple in the Old Testament and Herod's temple up the top there huge difference if you go down the bottom here you can see this uh, central place here um, that's a plan view of it and that's a typical NFL field in the states so it's probably about four NFL fields um, in size and that's not even the temple precinct that's actually just a bit in the middle of the temple so it's a massive thing here's um, a diagram of the temple precinct itself so what you've got is you've got all the internals happening here and everywhere around there is actually the Gentiles courtyard. So here's, let me just give you a bit of a, a picture of it. The court of the Gentiles, which was as far as non-Jews were allowed to go in terms of connecting with God, those two courts, that was about 35 acres in size. Massive. Um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, you can see these um, columns around here. Here's what he said. 
Um, he said the columns were 30 feet high, so 10 metres high. I mean, look at how many of them there are. They're 10 metres high. There's probably hundreds of them. Uh, and so massive that it took three persons with hands joined together to surround one of them at the base. They, just, they are big, big columns. The columns were crowned with Corinthian capitals and the ceiling of the porticos was ornamented with wood caving, sorry, uh, carvings. So what's actually happening here, like if you can just get your head in the game here, is we're not, uh, typically when people think about Jesus cleansing the temple, he just comes in and dominates, all right? Now I want to suggest to you if it's 35 acres that Jesus is probably not dominating everything in the court of the Gentiles at that point. And I would suggest to you that if he did actually dominate all of that in the court of the Gentiles, there would have been probably a few legions of uh, Roman soldiers coming to sort things out because that would be a huge, huge deal. It's, it's probably more reasonable to think that Jesus is in a quadrant or a corner of it and uh, sorting things out uh, the way that he sees fit in that corner. Um, to add on top of that is uh, in AD 66, Josephus actually notes that in the year that the temple was completed, 256,000 lambs were slaughtered during Passover alone. So if you just think about it, what you've got is you've got this precinct, you've got foreigners coming in and they're needing to change their money over so they can pay with the right money to buy the correct animal that they need to sacrifice. You've probably got hundreds if not thousands of animals and just a whole bunch of kind of marketplace kind of going on in that space. You've got 35 acres of it. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, and what's actually happening there, it appears, is that maybe the money changes are not giving the right money. Maybe they're ripping people off with the animals. And this is all happening in the space that was meant for people who weren't Jews to connect with God. And rightly, Jesus is angry about it. His anger was focused on the lack of fruitfulness in spite of the signs of life. I mean, if you went in there, it would look lively, wouldn't it? You're just kind of going, this is a happening place. This is a very religious place. Everyone's buying stuff and they're sacrificing stuff. Jesus is going, no, this is a very dead place. This is a very unfruitful place. And as I thought about this when I was preparing it, I just I thought about how we're his temple, aren't we? And I just, I just started asking just started thinking, I just thought, are we fruitful? If Jesus came to this temple today, are we fruitful? Do you bear fruit for God? Would Jesus be angry at you? Not in a final wrath kind of way, but maybe a cranky father. Just going, I've given you lights and I'm living inside of you. You being fruitful. Maybe he would be cranky. Maybe he would be angry at some of us. Maybe we're like that temple that wasn't particularly fruitful, even though it looked like it was. Do you inspire others to faith? Do you love others in practical ways? Do you tell others about Jesus? How long since uh, someone decided to follow Jesus and you were part of it? How quickly do you obey what God asks you to do? Yourself feeder, are you? Or you rely on other people to feed you spiritually? Do you take initiative in spiritual things? Do you encourage others? Do you serve others? Do you know and play your part in God's story? Are you pushing in to God to change you and redeem areas of your life that are problematic? I reckon for a lot of you, you can say yes to a lot of that. Am I saying this because you've got to go home and try harder? No, I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there's a sense in which if you're really closely connected to Jesus, that you will be fruitful. If you're distant from him and you're not oriented to him, you're not going to be that fruitful. And he wants to see that change if you're not fruitful. Let me finish with this one. Do you live in the ongoing awareness that you can't do any of these without God's grace or without his help? Do you see that? That's fruitful. <laughs> like you could say, man, I want some of that stuff. I want to get better. I want to be more fruitful, but I can't do it on my own. I need to abide in the vine, which is what Jesus says in, in John 15 there. Abide in him. Unless someone abides in him, they won't bear fruit. But abide in him, you bear much fruit. So abide in him. Number three, this is where we finish. The objective of Jesus' 
anger. Now, let me read the first part of this and uh, I'll get you to put your thinking caps on again. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away from its roots and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you've cursed is withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, rah, rah, rah. What's Jesus doing? Any idea? Because it seems weird. I mean, it's a bit like when I read it before. He's, Can we get back to the fig tree? Because we just asked you about that and you're just talking about praying that a mountain will get up and go in the ocean and talking about forgiveness and all that sort of stuff. Well, we, why is this thing dead and what's that? Do you know what I think um, Jesus is saying? You see, the fig tree symbolised the temple as the means of approach to God. You see, and people thought if we can just get to the temple, we'll get to God. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I'm the focus now. I'm the temple. I'm the place that you come to to connect with God. You come to me. Because notice the very first thing that he says after the disciples say that is have faith in me. Have faith in God. Do- connect directly through me now. Orient to me. Don't have faith in the building, the physical appearance. I mean, it would have been a magnificent area. Don't have faith in that. Don't have faith in just being able to do all that sort of stuff in the temple and that it looks so vibrant and so full of life. He says, connect with me be connected to me that one's done you know there's a sense isn't there in which jesus is saying two temples are going to get destroyed one of them's going to be my body and that one and only one of them is going to get put back together and that's going to be my body so you connect with me don't connect with that thing you see the temple of jesus's body is the glorious one isn't it i mean herod's temple would have been very very glorious but jesus is kind of saying stick with me i am the temple that is the glorious one i am the one that is going to draw people to me when i get lifted up as that temple on that day when he would bear the sins of the world i think he's calling for their orientation to him and their connection to him